Hello, I'm Nadia Singh and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? This podcast aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be covering industry guidance on strategies for reopening the country amid COVID-19 spread. To discuss this are Dr. Carlos Del Rio with Emory University and Dr. Preeti Milani of the University of Michigan. Thank you both for being here. Dr. Milani, I'd like to start with you. Many states have begun to reopen, however, some more gradually than others. Do you believe states have sufficient testing capacity and contact tracing capabilities to reopen safely? So as things have improved from a public health standpoint, everyone is thinking ahead to re-engaging as a nation and sort of waiting on a final timeline. And of course, that's going to vary a little bit depending on where you live. And there's been a lot of focus on testing. And you know, I would say yes and no. As a, as a nation, we're certainly light years ahead of where we were a few months ago with COVID testing, both in terms of overall capacity, but even more importantly, turnaround time and accuracy. But a uh, few things, once the availability of testing is not uniform, even within states, some regions have adequate testing, others have uh, very little or none. Adequate for clinical care and adequate for reopening are, are really different in terms of scale. So testing is gonna be important, uh, particularly to make sure that ill employees can be assessed and tested in short order, prevent workplace transmission. Uh, obviously that puts the community at, at risk. And then uh, you know, just making sure people feel comfortable so testing is gonna be really key, uh, but with that is also contact tracing. And this is where uh, I have some big concerns because I think, I think you know, states are sort of going out on their own here with this. And I heard a few days ago, Illinois governor announced a large investment in the space and my home state, Michigan, is also developing a plan and technology is gonna be essential and the communication around protecting privacy. Related to that technology is gonna be important I think we're going to have to get very creative because we don't have the kind of numbers in terms of a public health task uh, workforce to really do contact tracing at the level that we expect it to be needed. Thank you for your insight there, Dr. Milani. Dr. Del Rio, turning to you now, some of the states I just mentioned are reopening despite not having achieved a significant 14-day downward trend in cases statewide. Is this concerning to you? Oh, definitely it concerns me. And again, as, as Dr. Milani said, you know, clearly the, uh, the White House issued some uh, document saying this is what is necessary for you to go to this initial stage. And part of it had to do with symptoms and cases. You needed to have a, de- a steady decrease in cases over 14 days. Part of it required to have your, with your hospital capacity. And part of it required to do with testing. And I think states in a, are in different places getting there. And I think that some states... Uh, you know, I'm going to put the example of, of, of my state, Georgia or Alabama, they went into opening without meeting any of those criteria. And, and I think now are them slowly, as, as things are getting better, they're beginning to meet some of the criteria, primarily around testing. But, but I think it was a little bit like going, jumping into the pool before you know how to swim or before you have even your bathing suit on. You really needed to have these things in place in order to do it orderly. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So we are, we're, we're in front of a, a hodgepodge of approaches that I think we're only, only time will tell what's going on. Some excellent points there, Dr. Del Rio. Thank you. Dr. Milani, turning back to you now, I'd like to ask you if you have specific recommendations as they relate to the safe reopening of different types of businesses. For example, 
Restaurants and bars, salons, the travel industry. For not only the workers, but for the customers that want to use these resources? Workplaces and businesses, you know, they really vary a lot in terms of risk. And we can think about them as high, medium, low, in terms of the type of activity that occurs. But also, this is really important, is the number of customers that are served. Hair salons, for example, where there's a lot of very close contact, but it's not a lot of people. And there are going to be a lot of best practices related to things like access control, social distancing as much as can be happen and, and as much as can happen in certain settings, the cleaning and sanitation. And uh, we talk a lot about personal protective equipment and making sure that workers have what they need, whether it's in a, in a uh, meat processing plant or in a, in a hair salon. And then, of course, this is, this is assuming that testing and contact tracing and isolation is also available. Each industry is going to have to figure this out. And unfortunately, some businesses probably really can't safely reopen, at least the way that they've looked. It doesn't mean that they won't, but um, they probably can't do it very safely. In some cases, you can't really socially distance, but you can screen workers and customers. You can have good cleaning protocols. You can use PPE. You can decrease density. And hopefully, you can do it in a way that makes economic sense. I suspect we're going to see things like expanded hours, shift work. I don't think you're going to get a point of care test for COVID, though, to get a haircut. So uh, there's going to be residual risk in, with some of these businesses. You know, this, is, this gets back to this point, is that we can decrease risk. We can't eliminate it. Um, none of this is going to be perfect or easy. And for a lot of states, this is why there's sort of an order, a batting order, if you will, on what businesses are going to open first, because there are some you know, despite the fact that I know a lot of people want to get out there and, and um, you know, get a nice dinner and also get their hair cut, there's, there are going to be some things that are going to be a little harder to do. Certainly a lot to think about, Dr. Milani. Thank you. Along those same lines, Dr. Del Rio, do you have specific recommendations for workers in high-risk groups? For example, those who are over 60 or who have chronic conditions but who must return to work. We need to do as much as we can to take care of our most vulnerable, right? And in my mind, our most vulnerable are really, you know, those with, with chronic conditions, the, the, those over the age of 60, 65. And, and really also, we tend to forget about people with, with obesity. Obesity is a major risk factor for severe disease. We've seen this in several places. I start with nursing home residents. I'm, I think those are the most vulnerable populations. I think almost a third of deaths in many states have been among people living in nursing homes. So that, that is, has to be our number one priority. Then we need to think about our workers. And if there's a worker that, that should not come back to work, we need to give them the opportunity to telework and to continue doing what many of us have been doing. And if that's not possible, then maybe think about reassigning them in a position of work where they're not going to be in front of the public. I think a lot of the increase, the excess number of cases and deaths we've seen among minorities in great part has been due to the fact that many of those minorities are frontline employees, are in places where they cannot really, you know, use PPE appropriately. You know, I was hearing about this morning on the radio about almost 13,000 people that have tested positive at, at meatpacking facilities and what impact that's having in the food supply. I think we, we needed to take care of those people before there were 13,000 people infected. They work in very close proximity, very close quarters. A lot of infection going to happen there. So I really think that employees, employers also need to look at ways to make the work environment safe, safer. And it's gonna require uh, investment, but it's also gonna require uh, creativity and, and, uh, and imagination. Uh, I was talking to somebody today about how they're gonna be you know, 
distancing cubicles and how they're going to be placing cubicles so people sitting in cubicles are no more than eight feet from each other but also there's going to be barriers higher barriers in the in the cubicles so i think the offices will also change the work environment is going to change and i think this is again part of this new normal is, is redesigning our new workspace thank you for that perspective dr del rio as we all know many can't return to work unless childcare facilities reopen what recommendations do you have for child care facilities, Dr. Milani? And child care is a little bit complicated because child care has always been a place where there's a lot of infection transmission. And you know, the issues are a little bit different around uh, daycares, and some of them have, have remained open, especially for children of essential workers. And you know, initially, we were, there was a lot of discussion that, well, kids don't get COVID or they don't get sick with COVID. And of course, this is not true. And recently, the association with this pediatric inflammatory syndrome really raised a lot of concerns for parents and, and you know, for our whole community. As you note, kids really can't socially distance, especially really young kids. They can't socially distance, and I would say they shouldn't socially distance. It's part of being a kid. So the focus for, for child care settings is really figuring out what can be done to decrease risk since it can't be fully eliminated. And there are a number of things that can be done, including screening kids for fever and signs of illness, and also screening the staff having a really firm policy around keeping sick kids home and, and creating good communication for parents and staff on why that's important and making sure parents who need to work, including some of the essential workers at the healthcare system, that they have an option to have some sick care at home. I, I know at the University of Michigan, we have a program to support families, avoiding large gatherings of kids at the daycare and then making sure that the cleaning protocols, the disinfection and the hand washing is, is better than ever as much as possible in the short term as daycares start opening up, keeping the numbers small. And that's not gonna always be possible, but at least short term before the real need increases, doing the best you can. And then I think the kids cohorting them together, you know, preventing that widespread mixing of the groups. And then I just wanna to touch on the issue of staffing. And this is an issue not just for daycares, but really for nursing homes and other communal settings. As uh, Dr. Del Rio mentioned, the, the nursing homes have been a, a problem for uh, COVID transmission. And a lot of this happens because someone comes to work sick. So having a system that's forgiving and flexible, that has adequate sick leave and paid time off is really important to keeping everyone healthy. And having finally some standard policies around getting staff back to work safely. And this can be done either in partnership with public health, potentially occupational health, so that these decisions are not random and they're really being based on health and well-being, not on urgent staffing needs. One thing I will add, you know, in the much discussed and, and quote-unquote suppressed by the White House CDC recommendations for safely opening business that initially were re released and then they were not released, the first item in that interim guidance is actually about child care programs. So they were they went into a lot of detail on what child care programs need to need and need not to do. And I think it's actually a pretty well done document. So I hope that it, it lives, you know, to see the life of day because we really need that information. Dr. Del Rio, can you also address how likely it is that we will see additional waves or spikes of COVID-19 cases as a result of reopening? Even if you reopen safe as safely as you can, and I can think about South Korea as a country that nobody would argue has not done the right thing in the way they, they open, right? And last weekend, they had a huge outbreak related to people going to nightclubs. I think what we need to realize is outbreaks are gonna to continue to happen in this illness in spite of us doing everything we can possibly do to prevent them. This is a very transmissible virus and we are learning how difficult it is to control. And even if you've done everything right, you're gonna see outbreaks. So if you haven't done things right, 
I think you're going to see even more outbreaks. Another top of mind question for you to answer, Dr. Del Rio. Are hospitals prepared for possible increases in cases? I mean, I think my answer here is depends, right? I mean, depends what you call prepared. Some hospitals are better prepared than others. But again, it doesn't take much to overwhelm our healthcare system. Our healthcare system has been working at capacity for many, many years. I mean, we know that even a bad influenza season overwhelms the healthcare system. So down in Georgia, in the city of Albany, they had a couple of, of super spreader events related to some funerals, and the local hospitals were rapidly overwhelmed. You may think your hospital is in good position, and then all of a sudden you rapidly get overwhelmed. One of the parameters that we need to continue monitoring on a continuous basis is the number of available hospital beds, the number of emergency room visits. Increasingly monitoring the number of cases is not a very good parameter because as we're doing more testing and as we're doing more testing of asymptomatic individuals, the cases are going to go up. And hopefully a lot of those cases are gonna be asymptomatic individuals. So knowing cases, it may be a false parameter to follow. A better parameter is gonna be looking at how many people are showing up in the emergency room with COVID-like illness, how many people are actually get admitted to the hospital with COVID and what the ICU bed capacity and ventilator capacity is at that specific facility and that specific state or hospital. I'd like to pose the last question to the entire panel. Dr. Milani, I'll start with you. What more should federal, state, and local governments be doing with regard to physical distancing and a safe reopening? The approach has been really different depending on where you live. And you know, fortunately, I think it has been public health informed. And public health doesn't have a political affiliation. Some of the most effective messaging I've seen has really come from governors who span the full political spectrum. And I've said very clearly that without control of this pandemic, there's no getting back to normal. In addition to communications, I think simply modeling good behavior. And I think this is true at the local level. It's true at the state level, national level. As we start re-engaging some of the issues around physical distancing and masks, you know, seem to have been reframed wrongly as this loss of personal freedom. But in a sense, that is our step. That is like the, the tool to, to get back some of our personal freedom. So I, I hope that we stay on message more than anything. Dr. Del Rio, your thoughts? What we need to do is, is really work together. This is not a political issue. This is really a public health issue. And we need all to really work together. This is a disease that is showing us that whether you're rich or poor or you know, where you are, respiratory viruses get transmitted. And we all need to protect each other. That's why we need to wear masks in public. We all need to take care of ourselves. As I tell people, I don't want to see you in the hospital. You don't want to get infected. You don't want to end up in my ICU, even if I have capacity to take care of you. We need to really continue supporting, therefore, investment in public health. We, we did not do that for many years, and I think we're paying the price now. And we need to continue investing and advocating for investing in research. What's going to get us out of this problem is going to be research. It's going to be research that discovers novel treatments and discovers eventually a vaccine for this disease. And if we did not have that research, we would not be where we are right now. I mean, already with remdesivir showing some activity with clinical trials of, of a vaccine already in phase one. I think we are making incredible progress, but it's because we have invested in research and we can continue to do that. So support public health, support investment in research. Those are the most important things to get out of this pandemic. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any final comments. Dr. Milani, I'll start with you. This is going to be a really interesting time, the phase of the pandemic where you know, we're not simply worried about the healthcare system and, and worrying about being overwhelmed and that, you know, it was very, very easy in some ways to, to shut things down and ramp down. 
but that process of re-engaging is really going to be much more complicated. It, it won't be flipping the switch, but I think there's a lot to learn and it can be done in a way that's thoughtful and very public health informed. It's going to vary from place to place, even within a state, things are going to be different. And this is going to call for all of us to uh, share responsibility, which is not something we're used to, where my behavior is going to affect everyone else's health. Dr. Del Rio, the last word is yours. The other thing I want to 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 thank and thank again and say is our healthcare workers, and in particularly uh, those that are members of our society. Infectious disease has been at the front lines. Infectious disease has really been critical in the response to this epidemic. And I think more than ever, we have shown and continue to show not only the, the value of infectious disease, but also the incredible uh, individuals and the incredible caring people that work in infectious disease. Infectious disease is a really exciting field, it's an incredibly exciting profession, and it's because we have some of the brightest and some of the best people in this field working, we are going to get out of this pandemic. And I start by you know, mentioning Dr. Fauci, who really is uh, now, nowadays a rock star and somebody who's really guiding our, our nation through this crisis. Thank you, everybody in Infectious Disease, and thank you for members of the society for everything you're doing on a day-to-day basis in this pandemic. At this time, I'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Drs. Carlos Del Rio and Preeti Milani for their expertise, time, and participation. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDS website, idsociety.org, and be sure to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.